You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, ChristianHumanist.org. All the girls are complicated. Episode 16 of the Christian Feminist Podcast. Uh, This week's recording is on male feminist allies. I'm Victoria Reynolds-Farmer, and with me today are Katie Grubbs and Blake Miller. Hi, Katie and Blake. Hi. Hi there. Uh, Listeners, you might remember that Katie has been a guest panelist a couple of times before, uh, but this is her first show as a regular panelist, which we're really happy about here at the CFP. Uh, Blake is also a new regular, and he's joining our team to replace Lisa, who is taking a sabbatical from the show in order to finish her first novel. Uh, So best wishes to Lisa in that pursuit. Uh, In light of these things, we're going to let the introductions run a little bit longer than they usually do so that you listeners can get to know Blake and Katie. So tell our listeners a little bit about yourselves, guys. Katie, you first. Okay. I'm Katie Grubbs, and I live in McPherson, Kansas, and I'm uh, married to David Grubbs from the Christian Humanist Podcast, as our shared last name probably indicates. I am currently um, still a graduate student uh, through the University of Georgia, and I've been working on my dissertation for a while now on early modern child elegy, which is really exciting. And I'm actually um, hopefully going to have a little bit more time to work on that. Um, in the coming months, I was, uh, up until very recently, was working full-time as an English professor and director of the Writing Center at Central Christian College here in town, but uh, upon the birth of my second child this fall, I have decided to take a little hiatus from full-time teaching for a little while. So I'm taking a little bit of a break, hopefully get a little bit more done on my own writing, um, and uh, and maybe teach a class or two uh, to make sure that, that I don't lose my touch. But um, I'm very excited to be podcasting more often um, because it gives me a chance to have some great academic dialogue, even though I'm not in the classroom right now. And uh, as far as kind of my... I guess my personal Christian part of the Christian feminist um, name, just a little bit about my kind of personal theology. Um, I've attended all kinds of churches in my life. Um, You know, I grew up Southern Baptist. We've also belonged to Bible churches and uh, PCA, Presbyterian churches at the moment. My husband and I attend a great Bible church plant in our town. And I think that I'm probably the only complementarian here at the CFP. Um, you know, to, perhaps token uh, complementarian. So it's always fun to um, to get to experience other viewpoints. And I think that it's really, really going to be exciting to be here on the podcast more often. And I'm very, very much looking forward to it. So that's me. Thanks, Katie. Uh, and uh, and we love you, even though you're a complementarian. Oh, thank you so much. Joke, people. Uh, okay. Uh, <laughs> Blake, your turn. Tell us about you. 
All right. My name is uh, Blake Miller, originally from Georgia, uh, apparently like these two here, uh, but now I'm living in Williamsburg, Virginia. Um, right now, I am working at a nonprofit called 3E Restoration. Uh, what we do is equip, encourage, encourage, excuse me, and <laughs> empower uh, people experiencing poverty or homelessness to move from a position of insufficiency to self-sufficiency. Um, and this is spun out of church uh, here, and it's a, it's a really holistic and intensive approach to meeting these people where they are and addressing every possible need they could have in order to, to get them to a new state of life and to really reacclimate them into being um, part of society, homeowners, apartment renters, job havers, that kind of thing. I'm also uh, pursuing uh, the hospital chaplaincy, which I think might be my true calling that I finally found out about here at 28 years old. Um, so I am getting what's called clinical pastoral education, doing a little internship, um, about a dozen hours a week at my local hospital, and really just experiencing the joy that comes from getting to be I guess, a person of peace as I walk into random hospital rooms and, and listen to the stories of people who are in there. Uh, I guess, slide on the family information to share for me, uh, childless, wifeless, got invited to a, uh, a wedding recently, and they told me there'll be single girls there, there'll be single girls there, and apparently I guess I'm supposed to bring a butterfly net or something, we'll see. <laughs> Um, in terms of personal theology, I also grew up Southern Baptist, um, took communion once a year, whether we needed to or not, that kind of thing, and uh, was raised with an idea of, of complementarianism as, as far as I understood it and biblical literalism. Um, got my Master's of Divinity at Abilene Christian University in Abilene, Texas, and have slowly come to to keep, you know, a, a great uh, conservative theology on most things, but embrace a little bit of uh, egalitarianism in, in men and women's relationships, women's leadership roles in church, and as well as a love for a historical critical look at the Bible, which focuses on looking at, you know, the books of the Bible as discrete documents written by specific people, to specific people, for specific purposes, and I really am enjoying the way that the Bible really comes alive um, and shows us an entire world when we look at it that way. So, that's me in a nutshell, I guess. Thanks, guys, uh, for those introductions. Uh, as I said earlier... Tonight we're going to talk a little bit about male feminist allies, uh, who they are, how they exist, if they exist, the way they should exist, all of these things. And uh, we're doing that for a couple of reasons. First reason, feminism has been in the news a lot lately. Uh, lots of discussions about lots of young celebrities who identify as feminists or don't, uh, why, uh, the old standby, the This Is What a Feminist Looks Like t-shirt is back. Uh, Elle magazine, the UK version, has revived it. Uh, they took a lot of hunky pictures of celebrity dudes like Tom Hiddleston and Benedict Cumberbatch and somebody we'll discuss uh, at greater length a little later, Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Um, lots of celebrities talking about feminism 
especially male celebrities, in the news. So that's one reason we wanted to talk about this tonight. Another reason is that we got a very detailed, very interesting uh, email from a listener, Jeff Gailey, who had a lot of um, suggestions for show topics in them. Uh, and in one of them, he said that he would like to know uh, how he, as a man, might, uh, and this is a direct quote here, be a partner in showing concern for the flourishing of all people everywhere without white knighting all over the place. So, uh, given the prominence of these kinds of things in the news and Jeff's question, uh, we thought that it would be good to talk a little bit about male allies on the show tonight. So, first thing we need to do is, uh, is talk about the term ally. Uh, what does it mean? Where did it come from? Uh, this term first gains prominence in social justice movements in the late 80s and early 90s. And it has a primary affiliation, or first uh, kind of comes to public consciousness, because of its connection to the LGBTQ rights movement. The word, um, most broadly, denotes a person of privilege in solidarity with uh, an oppressed person or people. Uh, someone who is in a higher social position um, and outside of the group that they're allied to and supporting. Um, you hear this used for a lot of different groups, uh, straight allies to LGBTQ people, white allies to people of color, male allies uh, to women and feminist causes, etc. So the goal is to use your place of privilege to promote positive social change. There are some groups of people who object to the term ally um, on the basis of it being seen as promoting division or exclusion, uh, and thus prefer other terms, terms like male feminist or just feminist, or in the cases of race and orientation that I mentioned earlier, words like anti-racist or anti-heterosexist instead. Personally, uh, I like the term ally. I think it covers a lot of bases, and I think because it is uh, so broadly applicable, it can hit on the connection between different types of oppression uh, if it's used in the right context. So for the purpose of this episode, when I use the term ally, I'm using it interchangeably uh, with the idea of the male feminist but it can just as easily mean somebody of any type of privilege trying to acknowledge that privilege in order to work against the oppression of other people. So that's my two cents about the term ally. Uh, what do you guys think? How have you heard it used? Do you think it's positive or negative? What do you think about the term? I guess I can go first. Um, I, uh, I definitely understand the idea of, of ally being a useful term to denote the fact that in this case a male is in a privileged position and, and at the very least can't really interface with feminism and with women's issues in exactly the same way that women can. But I also do really sympathize with the idea that you know if, if women want men to help, then it might be useful for them to be able to call themselves feminists as well. And, and just the idea of if feminism is just the desire for equality between the sexes. If that is the definition we want it to have, uh, then I think a, a guy should be able to be a feminist. I think maybe the way I would say it is a man walking down the street, you know, can be a feminist, but maybe in certain conversations it might be better and more advantageous for him to be an ally. Uh, those are good points. Katie, do you have any thoughts here? 
I, I think it's kind of, um, I think that Blake's totally right that it can be different depending on the situation. And I think that one of the times when that might vary is because people tend to have different and uh, definitions of the word feminist. So that, you know, if a, if a man is speaking with a woman who he knows has a certain definition of feminist that may or may not include him, he might, and like Blake said, find it advantageous to use the word like. However, it's also completely appropriate, I think, to just for a man to just use the word feminist to describe himself. Though, you know, it can it can vary. But I think that using them interchangeably, like you said, Victoria, is completely fine. And I think that that's kind of how I've seen it a lot in the media and also just in how I've been in conversations before. So I think it's it's okay to it would be okay to say it that way. Great. Thank you uh, for those comments. So the next uh, kind of piece of background we're going to talk about is the fact that feminism is, uh, is, is in the zeitgeist right now. It's in the news. We've got all these celebrities talking about the issue. Um, what's the deal with that? Why this issue now? Um, and, and why now specifically uh, in the mouths and lives of not just young celebrities, but uh, it seems like young male celebrities uh, specifically. Blake, can you speak to that a bit? Yeah, I think uh, 2014 is arguably a year in which the idea of the celebrity feminist or the idea that celebrities need to extol their feminism kind of reached critical mass. Uh, we, we saw a lot more articles, a lot more e-ink spilled on the subject than I've seen in quite some time. One example um, the singer Megan Trainer, who came to uh, the popularity with the song All About That Bass, um, some people thought it was a feminist anthem because it was about being okay with a person's body, and some people thought that there was a, a joke at the expense of skinny people, so maybe it wasn't feminist, that sort of thing. You know, she was asked, uh, do you consider yourself a feminist? And she said she didn't really like that idea and said that her motto, her life motto, would probably be something like, love yourself more. And one of the articles I read about this idea um, and this decision she had made was kind of took her to task at saying, okay, so women make 25% less than men, but it's all right. Don't, you know, just love yourself more. And, you know, women are only a small fraction of the people in Congress, but it's okay. Just love yourself more. Um, and I think that's what we've seen a lot of people coming out as feminists, some people coming out specifically not as feminists, or even going so far as to say they don't see the need uh, or utility of feminism anymore, and being either praised or lambasted from both sides, really, um, feminists and kind of anti-feminists as well, uh, for these kinds of decisions. For instance, um, Shailene Woodley, expressed her idea of feminism as empowering women by disempowering men, and that's why she's not. Uh, Kaylee Cuoco Sweeting from the Big Bang Theory said that she had never, in her opinion, experienced inequality, so she didn't call herself a feminist. And this was really funny to me. Selma Hayek said she wasn't a feminist on the red carpet on her way to being honored as a woman's rights advocate at an event called Make Equality reality. So a lot of people have refused the label of feminist, and the word feminist has, has had this um, connotation attached to it, depending on who you ask, of being um, really good or really toxic. Now, on the other hand, we've had uh, people like Beyonce and Taylor Swift 
who've kind of shied away from the label of feminist really uh, embrace it this year. Beyonce was once quoted as saying, why do you have to choose what type of woman you are? Why do you have to label yourself anything? I'm just a woman and I love being a woman. Um, and then in January of, of this last year, 2014, she wrote a piece about the wage gap um, for the 2014 edition of a publication called the Shriver Report, uh, where she really extolled that you know gender equality is a myth. In fact, I think that was the title of her little um, essay. And then at the MTV Video Music Awards in August, she danced and sang for about 16 minutes, and uh, lines from the Nigerian author Chimamanda Ngozi Akidi. Adiki, excuse me, um, regarding the ways in which women are taught to be less successful than men appeared on the background behind her. And there was a a segment that has turned into a thousand gifs around the Internet of her standing in front of this enormous lit backdrop that just boldly declares the word feminist. So she's, you know, I think uh, totally turned over a new leaf as that. Taylor Swift, on the other hand, was, was once quoted to saying, I don't really think about things as guys versus girls when she was asked if she were a feminist. And um, now she's gone on to saying, as a teenager, I didn't understand that saying you're a feminist is just saying that you hope women and men will have equal rights and equal opportunities. What it seemed to me, the way it was phrased in culture, society, was that you hate men. And now I think a lot of girls have had a feminist awakening because they understand what the word means. So um, we've seen some people really take to a better idea of the definition definition of feminist and, and decide that they can wear that proudly as a label and as a modifier for themselves. Um, I think I'll cap this little section off by looking at Jessica Gross in Elle magazine actually wrote an article saying stop asking actresses whether they're feminists. And she complains about the negative backlash that women receive if they don't identify as uh, feminists and says it's much more important that people like Shailene Woodley star in movies with fully fleshed out female characters than say the right things in interviews and that ragging on them for not answering the feminism question correctly might not make them or the girls that look up to them think highly of the idea of feminist. So it's a good point if you ask me. Now on the men's side, we've already mentioned uh, an insurgence of guys like Benedict Cumberbatch and Tom Hiddleston. Uh, we've also got Daniel Radcliffe, who um, I think is, has been very vocal about his idea of feminism. Once I saw an interview of him where someone asked, you know, is it weird to think that people are going to be sexualizing the guy who played Harry Potter for so long in their childhoods? And he said, well, they've been doing it to Emma Watson, my co-star, in those, in those movies for quite some time now. I thought that was a really good point. And perhaps maybe my favorite thing said by a male feminist this year was the comedian Aziz Ansari who said, if you really think about it, everybody is a feminist because when you watch Beyonce in a concert or on your TV, you don't think to yourself, oh, she's a really great singer and dancer, but I really wish she couldn't vote and that she could be uh, paid 25% less than Jay-Z. So, yeah, we've really seen um, celebrities be asked the question, are you a feminist? Answer in a variety of ways and really important to us in terms of this, this major conversation we're having about what feminism means and, and whether it's something we all should be. I think that's about it. Thanks for those examples. Uh, and I'm really glad that you mentioned that Aziz Ansari interview uh, that was on David Letterman. I have watched the video, oh, I don't know, five or ten times since it aired. It's so funny and so wonderful. Uh, so I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned that specifically. Uh, so Katie, um, 
now Katie is going to talk to us a little bit about maybe the biggest um, celebrity feminism event of the past year. Uh, Emma Watson, who we've already mentioned briefly, uh, gave a speech to the UN Assembly on Women um, about her new project, the He for She campaign. Uh, This speech went viral um, because Watson is calling specifically for men to be a bigger part of feminism. Uh, Lots of people have been talking about this campaign. So, Katie, tell us more about that. Sure. Um, So, the He for She campaign is... um just to kind of begin by using its own language. So, you know, if you go to the website, um, the, the kind of, it's described definitely and unequivocally solidarity movement. So the idea is to, for men and boys to demonstrate solidarity with the women and girls in their lives and around the world to try to strive for gender equality. And um, specifically using words, and I think this is great, using words to describe boys and men as advocates and also stakeholders, right? You know, everyone has... Um, you know, mothers or sisters or female friends, and I think they're really trying to um, to bring that to mind for men and boys that you know they're stakeholders in the well-being of the women in their lives, and so they're um, he for she has a lot of different I think a lot of different ways of focusing on that, but um, I know that one thing that they're really trying to do is trying to focus in different arenas. So. So um, in the kind of action kit that they have on their website that anyone interested in joining the campaign um, can download or um, can perhaps implement in communities, there are specific approaches, for example, for college and university students or for civic organizations in um, communities. And so it's really an attempt to reach people, uh, men, particularly men, though women, I think, are also very interested, um, and reach men and women of all walks of life and in all different areas. And something interesting that I, I, I noticed when I was doing my research on he for she is that there's very emphasis on making a commitment to gender equality so that if you go to the he for she website, there is a place where, where you can say, I agree. You can click a button to make the he for she commitment, which is a kind of pledge of sorts. And what it says is it says, quote, gender equality is not only a women's issue. It is a human rights issue that requires my participation. I commit to take action against all forms of violence and discrimination faced by women and girls. That's the pledge. He for she pledge and very, a very strong statement. Uh, I know when I look at it, it, it almost sounds intimidating to, to to say, you know, to say something like take action against all forms of violence, you know, but that looks different for everyone. Taking action, you know, is going to de- mean different things for different people. But um, again, the, the point of the whole campaign, and she elaborates on her this on, on this in her speech, which we're going to talk about later. But the point of the whole campaign is, again, to to bring in men and boys and make them feel a part of a, of a global fight against gender inequality. Because as as they say, as he for she campaign states, and I think this is very true, that when women are empowered, uh, the whole of humanity benefits. I think that that's one of their big points, is that if you can make life better for women, um, in part because many women are mothers, um, things become better for their children and, and, and for the world by extension. So that's kind of the main thrust of the, the wider campaign he for she. Um, not to talk about the speech right now, but that's, that's kind of the, the larger campaign. Uh, the, the speech is actually our next topic, so can you go ahead and uh, and go a little deeper into that? Sure. So, 
Interestingly, despite its viral nature, I only saw this speech recently. When it first came out, I read a lot about it, but um, but hadn't actually sat down and, and watched it all the way through. Things have been very crazy in our house recently with a new baby. But it's it's actually really, really exciting to me. Uh, and, and I don't know if in part it's because they chose a celebrity to to be their, their Goodwill Ambassador, the, the UN Women um, Goodwill Ambassador Emma Watson is. I don't know if it's just because they chose a celebrity that I really respect, but I think it was actually a very, very smart move for a, a young celebrity to make the speech. You know, Blake talked about there being this a lots of attention this year on young celebrities and are you a feminist or are you not a feminist? And I think that if uh, the idea is to capture the hearts and minds of men and women who are of a certain generation, I think that, that Emma Watson is a fantastic choice. You know, I know as a college teacher, so many of my students that taught in the last few years based with Harry Potter books, Harry Potter movies, she referenced the films one time in her speech, a funny moment. But um, I think that it was a very, very um, great choice to choose her. She's super engaging and she comes across as very kind. And I think that that's the main thing about the speech. Anyone who's seen it, I think you can tell. It's, it's because the attempt is to bring in men to join women in the fight for gender inequality. Her tone is very, very welcoming. You know, she says in the speech, this is your, if you haven't felt welcome before, men, this invitation to join with us in this fight and it's actually kind of interesting because she begins by going back through her life and just touching briefly on some times when she first began to notice gender inequality in her life you know um, when her friends uh, female friends started to drop out of their uh, she calls says beloved sports teams because they didn't want to get too muscly or when she began to notice male friends in her late teens who felt that they couldn't express their feelings or be vulnerable. She touches on um, things uh, on the male and the female side of kind of stereotyping or gender inequality. And she um, and so then she says, you know, for her deciding to be a feminist in her, I think she she said she was maybe when she first realized the word applied to her, maybe she was in her late teens, that for her this was uncomplicated to use her word, that that was an easy thing to kind of decide, an easy label to take, but said that she had realized recently that for a lot of people, the word feminist has bad connotations. It's a dirty word. It's not something they want to claim for themselves. And um, in, in part because, um, like some other young celebrities have said, as Blake mentioned, in part because in a lot of quarters, maybe it's perceived as being anti-men. And so then she kind of segues into that, you know, that's not what it's about. And, and you know, men don't feel disbarred from this effort. Don't feel like you don't you know everyone needs to work together for the goal of equality. And she even said, and I thought this was really intriguing because, you know, labels do matter. And for for a lot of people and, and words do matter matter and the fact that we are having a discussion about whether feminist allies appropriate or male feminist is appropriate or anything like that but she actually says in the speech that it's not the words it's the ideas behind it which I thought was very interesting um, and you know and, and if um, you know uh, and even it says towards the end of the speech too that we struggle for a uniting word but have a uniting movement which is he, he for she that's kind of how she wraps it up in the end so basically is kind of saying, you know, even if you don't feel like you're jiving with the word, if that's a problematic word for you, it doesn't matter if, you know, if the aims are the same, if we're all, you know, striving for gender equality. 
And I thought that was really, really interesting. And she really seems to be, um, really seemed to be stressing the idea that everyone suffers because of gender inequality. It's not, it, it, you know, the he for she campaign is about women, men standing up for women, but everyone suffers when there is stereotyping or gender inequality. You know, so she mentioned things like her dad, um, her parents are divorced. She mentioned her dad not getting the same respect for being a, a parent that her mom did or uh, things that, or, or male friends who struggled with mental illness and felt like that they couldn't express those vulnerabilities, that they couldn't seek help because of stigma, because maybe it wasn't manly to seek help, things like that. And so, uh, you know, points out that everyone suffers from gender stereotypes and also that uh, I made a, a really statement early in the speech that I think was is kind of a good soundbite or takeaway, which is that how, how can we affect change when only half of people are invited into the conversation? So basically, if men feel excluded from the conversation, even, you know, it's it's more difficult to affect change. And I also thought she made a really, really good point of kind of bringing out the idea that Aziz Ansari did, that you guys talked about, about people really being, really having some feminist ideas, even though they may might not ever use that word to describe themselves. And her phrase for it was inadvertent feminists. Um, she talked about people in her life who built her up, encouraged her along her way, and helped her to succeed as people who, you know, whether they would have used the label or not, were inadvertent feminists because they were helping her, a girl, uh, and now a woman, to to strive and succeed. And so I thought that was a, a really good way of thinking about that. And uh, the last thing that I just want to say about this speech, and, and I think everybody should watch it. It's not super long. It's about a 12-minute speech. But I think it's, it's great because it's so accessible. You know, she's not using... Um, lots of kind of, of jargon. She's not, you know, trying to alienate anyone. It's just good, really great kind of entry level, um, I guess, description of, kind of feminist ideals of, you know, equality for everyone, equal pay, everyone being treated the same, not being derided or degraded because of uh, gender inequality or because of stereotypes. And so it's, I think it's something that Definitely, well, I would say definitely a person who does not consider him or herself a feminist could still watch it and absolutely agree with the with the aims and the ideals that she's talking about. So, um, I would definitely encourage everybody to watch it. Awesome, uh, thanks, Katie. Blake, did you have um, anything to add to that responses that you had when you listened to Watson's speech? I was uh, particularly struck, very pleased to, to have her express um, just how she understood that men and boys face gender-specific challenges as well. And first time I heard the speech, I almost wanted to, to t say to her, okay, I get it, you know, I'm, I'm happy to see how much you know that men experience uh, these discriminations and these specific challenges. I'm, I'm almost wanted her to say, you know, all right, let's get into the nitty-gritty of how the he's are going to be working for the she's. But I realize uh, that, that that was something that a lot of men and boys needed to hear, uh, that feminists do care about male issues, and they also see um, single-gender problems as human problems and want to help with those as well. Uh, one move I thought was really great, I think Katie already touched on it, was um, 
when she was talking about growing up and seeing her friends and, and the people around her fall into these gendered roles in, in negative ways, she, she segues immediately from my, my female friends didn't want to do sports anymore and my male friends didn't want to you know emote too much outwardly anymore. And there was no point of her you know, having it as an aside. It was equally important. It, if you know, if it was a well-plotted tactic, it couldn't have been done any better. And I was just really happy to see that, and it really made me um, feel like this was uh, a really great cause that had its head on straight, and was really interested in what he was going to be doing from now on. Yeah, I um, I, I reacted much the same way. I was particularly impressed with what you guys have already touched on, so I won't elaborate on it more. Um, the idea that these rigid gender roles hurt men just as much as they hurt women. Um, I, I also caught a couple of other really cool things that I wanted to mention. Um, there's a a reference. She doesn't mention it by name, but she refers to um, another really famous um, UN conference on women's speech, uh, Hillary Rodham Clinton's 1997 Women's Rights Are Human Rights speech, um, which is actually really similar in scope uh, to this, except it's focusing on um, extending feminist ideologies to um, women not in the first world, but women in in more disadvantaged countries, and she's sort of trying to uh, connect people in the struggle for equality in a similar way that Watson does, though with a, a slightly different focus. So I enjoyed um, hearing Watson reference the uh, that speech that happened in uh, in the same conference uh, a couple of decades before. Um, this is a really important kind of event in feminist history. So cool that she uh, dropped that in there and knew about that. Also. Lastly, uh, she says near the end of the speech that gender should be a spectrum rather than a dichotomy. And as as someone who teaches, uh, as Katie said, college-age people who are kind of figuring out how they fit in their world, to hear her say so clearly and so articulately um, that... Uh, that, you know, binary gender is oppressive and not okay and offer the spectrum as an alternative. Uh, That was just huge. That was really, um, these are the kinds of things that I try to get my students to think about and to hear that coming from a person um, that a lot of people I teach do look up to and enjoy uh, was, was really exciting for me. Nerding out a little bit, I guess. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and, and that's actually a really great segue into our next uh, topic of discussion. Um, I'll go ahead and be really honest and say I have had a celebrity crush on Joseph Gordon-Levitt for many, many years uh, since I was a little kid, and he was the little kid on Third Rock from the Sun. Listeners, I may have dated myself. I don't know if any of you remember that show, um, but he was really cute. Uh, he's gone on to do lots of movies. He was in 10 Things I Hate About You, which you have heard me rant about on this show before, so I won't do that now. Uh, and recently done some, some indie stuff, 500 Days of Summer, a couple other things. Anyway, uh, we watched a video advertising his new web show, Hit Record, uh, and he's calling for submissions. Uh, to his web show from fans. In the video, he starts by talking about 
being asked about feminism a lot in recent interviews. As we've said, lots of celebrities have been. Uh, He says lots of people are asking him if he identifies with the term. He does. And what that term means to him. Uh, When asked to define the term, he says, quote, It just means that your gender doesn't have to define who you are. That you can be whatever you want to be, whoever you want to be, regardless of your gender. So, like Watson, uh, Levitt gives us a kind of base-level equality-for-all definition of feminism. He says that this interview made a lot of waves on the internet, both positive and negative, and mentions that he was, like Watson, shocked to uh, realize that lots of people don't actually identify with the term um, he specifically mentions the Women Against Feminism Tumblr site um, as being a kind of place for people who don't self-identify as feminists to congregate. Uh, he talks about investigating it, looking at it, and then goes on in the video to list a couple of common patterns of thought that he saw on the Tumblr. Uh, the first being, feminism is anti-men. The second being, feminism is unfairly prejudiced against women who choose uh, quote-unquote traditional gender roles, like stay-at-home motherhood. And lastly, that feminism is irrelevant because uh, we don't need any more. Equality has already been achieved. Uh, so I think that this video is really cool for several reasons. First, um, like Watson, Levitt clarifies that feminism at its basic level isn't really that complicated. It's about gender equality. Uh, so I, I think it's good that he lays that out so clearly. Um, I think that it's also good because he um, talks about feminist stereotypes in a clear way. Um, Stereotypes that I think are really common and also could maybe be roadblocks um, specifically for men to calling themselves feminists. Uh, They don't want to ally themselves with a movement that hates them. They don't want to ally themselves with a movement that disrespects other women uh, or a movement that's unnecessary. So I think it's good that he mentions not just stereotypes at all, but those stereotypes particularly. Um, and additionally, um, he cites some sources, talks about the gender pay gap uh, in responding to the idea that feminism is irrelevant, says, well, no, um, it's not irrelevant, and here is some hard evidence as to why. Um, After this, he gets to the call for submissions part of the video, says that the next episode of Hit Record, um, each episode is centered around one theme, and that the next episode is going to be centered around the theme of your mom. He says that... Uh, feminism is a part of this discussion for him because his mother first introduced him to feminist ideas and he uh, calls her a second wave feminist um, and then gives definitions uh, and it is uh, should be said correct definitions of both the first and second waves of feminism um, so that's uh, that's huge I think It's not just that he's claiming the term or that he understands stereotypes. He's also taken the time to absorb and actually use the language of the movement. 
And that's the part that really, uh, not that I needed reasons to solidify my crush on this guy, because he's totally dreamy. If you don't know what he looks like, look him up. Um, but he he understands these terms. Here's a hunky young celebrity who uh, throws out the term second wave in a way that proves he knows what it means. Um, so he's, he's listened to the movement. He's actually... Uh, speaking about it from the inside in a way that that proves his knowledge. Um, And I think that that's important as far as this conversation we're having about male allies and how they can be allies. Um, Follow the model set up in this video. Listen and learn. Engage with opposing viewpoints in a respectful way, as he does uh, with the Women Against Feminism Tumblr. Familiarize yourself with terminology and then pass on the terminology. Uh, he talks several times in the video about wanting to further the conversation. So it's not just that he knows, it's that he wants to share what he knows. Um, and I think that's great. I think that's how social movements progress. So that is my two cents on why Joseph Gordon-Levitt is super cute and super smart and awesome. <laughs> Do you guys have anything to add about that video? I think that um, it's it's really great to have things like definitions, and and I think sometimes it can even be uh, really an asset to have a definition um, presented by a person who might seem like a little bit outside of the box, so that there you know that there might be people who don't understand, or you know, um, particularly maybe men who maybe don't know the definitions who might be maybe more receptive hearing them from um, a guy or, you know, or someone, someone famous that they maybe didn't realize was, you know, a feminist or a feminist ally. So I think that, that it, it's really great that he's trying to put it out there and trying to explain. And particularly, I think, because so many people who maybe have a negative view of what it means to be feminist or whatever, I think a lot of times are thinking of very extreme versions, perhaps, of a kind of second wave maybe ideology or, you know, something like that, I think, you know, and so if that's what maybe women on the, the Tumblr are reacting to, if that's the idea they have in mind, then kind of laying out the differences, laying out this is what this was about and this is the kind of basic definition, I think that that can really be helpful to maybe, uh, particularly, you know, earlier Blake was talking about Kaylee Cuoco Sweeting and I think it's, she definitely seems to, in, in the comments that she made that she got just lambasted for, she really seemed to have the idea that a kind of domesticity and embracing of domesticity can't coexist with being a feminist in, in her kind of initial comments. And that seems like a something that was cropping up a lot um, that JGL was talking about in the video. That's one of the things that women were mentioning a lot, women who said they were against feminism, was this idea that, well, it's it's a devaluing of domesticity. And so clearly there, you know, there's a lot of, maybe a lot of people who feel that way. So I, I did. I, li- I really liked that aspect of the video that he brought that out and really took the time to look at it. Right. I, uh, I appreciated just his overall tone. He was, he was, you know, bubbly, congenial, almost whimsical about the whole thing. Um, I liked that when he brought up this Women Against Feminism Tumblr, he didn't feel the need to to castigate these people for holding views that he didn't hold because that's not what's going to get them to join your side, you know. And I think it's important for us, to, for anybody who is a feminist or an ally, to ask themselves what can be done about the people who do believe uh, there's something 
that feminism is no longer useful for that you know that it's done its job and can be retired or anything like that there's maybe something we need to be saying that we haven't said in a while and i think maybe the best part of it for me was just the idea that his mother was his main inspiration to be a feminist and his mother was the reason he didn't find it at all strange to be a feminist and i would just kind of take a cue from that and say to any man who might not be on the side of the feminist might have heard a bad definition of feminism or not feel welcome to be a feminist i would say is there any person in your life you love who is female and if so you either you are a feminist or you should really think about you know deciding to be and calling yourself by that name and so i just i i just really liked seeing him do male feminism pretty well it was an inspiration uh, so the next text that we're going to talk about, um, I think we'll get not as great reviews, maybe, as uh, as the JGL video did, um, but that's not a reason not to talk about it. It might actually be a reason to talk about it, um, is a specific list of advice for male allies from FeministCurrent.com that came out in 2013. Uh Blake, can you give us an example of some of the advice uh, on that list and what you thought about it? Yeah, the list is called How to Be a Male Feminist Ally, written by Elizabeth Pickett for Feminist Current. Um, she describes herself as a mother and grandmother, a blogger and a poet, seething in Whitby, Ontario. And so it's eight rules um, that sort of project this idea of men seeking to understand women and feminism and the struggle for equal rights and seeking to be advocates for equal rights, among other men, um, but not going so far as to get into a direct critique of a feminist argument and the feminist's actions. It's just rules and ideas for how men can engage with feminism in a way I think that the author believes is respectful to the movement itself and the women who are currently a part of it. So one example uh, from the list goes like this. It says, think for yourself, but do it mostly by yourself. It's your work, not the work of feminists, to educate yourself. Don't come to us knowing nothing and acting as if you know everything. We are most often treated by men as if we are in need of their advice and direction, and we might be just a little sensitive to this. Uh, it's your job to treat us as true equals, because we are, and because when it comes to women live, women's lives, we know more than you do. It's true that we'll make lots of mistakes to just like you. It's not your job to tell us what they are. We are an exploited and oppressed sex class, and it is up to us to define the terms of our own liberation. Now, there is a, a current and sort of an emotional tone to this that I will save for the end when I sort of wrap up how I feel about this, but I just want you to, to express right now that I'm seeing it in, in these words that she's uh, using. But overall, I can get behind the logic she's expressing here. I try not to speak into issues that I know nothing about, if for no other reason than if you know I know nothing about them, I'm curious and I want to know more and I don't want to get in my own way of doing that. But I do know that that's not a universal case. Uh, and I can only imagine the annoyance of experiencing gender disparity as a woman and having men tell you that it doesn't exist or have them tell you their ideas of how to solve the problem as if you know, you're not capable of thinking it uh, yourself. So if if we take this rule overall as just do your homework before you you know come to class, then I think it's pretty good advice. 
Jesus, and that I can get behind. Uh, she gets a little bit further away from where I am, though, when she goes on this next quote. There are differences among feminists in terms of our analyses and the strategies and tactics we decide are appropriate for our own liberation. Choose those whom you wish to support and then support them by advocating amongst men. Keep your critiques of individual feminists or feminist perspectives to yourselves. As a result of our exploitation and oppression, there is horizontal fighting and even bullying between us sometimes. Leave this to us to sort out. And it goes on a little bit later, a little bit more than that. First off, I'm very happy every time a feminist explains uh, to whatever audience she's talking to that there are a multitude of different and often competing ideas within feminism. Uh, I haven't actually called myself a feminist for all that long, and one of the reasons I used to not call myself a feminist is because I would go on to, to gender-based you know, or feminist websites and read article headlines that just said things like, sorry, but there's no such thing as a pro-life feminist. And like, oh, okay, well, I guess you don't want me to be a feminist then because I'm, I'm pro-life right now. So it's well appreciated by me that she can say there are a lot of competing ideas. There are a lot of ideas, and they're all feminism. And I'm glad to see that. I also think that you know the, the pro-choice crowd, the, the people who are against you know being pro-life crowd who call themselves feminists, they are feminists too, and we have disagreements and it's worth talking about and not, you know, fighting about or, or hiding from each other on. On the other hand, I kind of have to chafe at the idea of a male ally who gets these kind of specific marching orders and who's permitted to spread feminism to uh, men but is not allowed to apparently debate a woman on the if I'm reading that right. It kind of smacks of this sort of dichotomy of, of, of purity and whether somebody is, you know, appropriate by genetics or, or upbringing or anything like that to, to be allowed to participate to the full degree. Uh, I kind of almost want to respond. I'll let you give me some of your advice, but I'm not going to let you set the limits on what I can and cannot do, you know, in terms of conversations with other people. Now that said, do I think that the keynote speaker at the next big feminism rally should be a man? Probably not, you know, uh, for feminism to continue to succeed and continue to make the progress that it needs to make, women have to be at the helm. They have to, if nothing else, show the people who disagree with feminism or disagree with a woman's equality to a man that they can be equal, that they are just as capable, that they're just as good at getting this kind of stuff done. So I totally understand the idea of maybe don't make you know the president of your local chapter of feminism a male that makes sense but at the same time for anybody to be completely disallowed from speaking into the situation not because of a lack of empathy or a lack of understanding but because they're the wrong gender seems to me to be kind of antithetical to what feminism is about at least as i perceive it and as i want to perceive it and i you know i don't think that the writer really wants that and i understand the pervasive of the problem of ignorant men telling women what they really ought to be doing and how destructive that can be, how, how much it gets in the way of, of better, more measured conversations. Um, but to say that there's no man out there who has something worth saying or that even if he did, it would be better if he wrote it down and handed it to a woman, that's something I really can't you know, support quite so much. And I'm happy to know that there are a lot of feminists, including, I guess, uh, you, Victoria, for letting me on this show, that, that doesn't feel the need to go that far. Uh, overall, 
I see and sense this tone in her writing. She talks a lot about, you know, women have been oppressed. Women have been marginalized. Some of them have been abused and, and uh, you know, had things taken from them. And that kind of reminds me of a time in my life where I was saying to myself, you know, I was reading some, some feminists. I was, I was reading about Andrea Dworkin. For example, the feminist who said women deserve their own sovereign state because of the oppression they had experienced by men. And um, one of the things I was talking to a college professor in, at my seminary, and I was telling him about this and just saying, I, you know, I don't understand how anybody could say that. And he, his response to me was, whenever somebody says something like that, I just have to ask myself, what could have happened to them in their lives that would make them feel that way? And that really just, you know, blew me back and, and really stopped me in my tracks. And, and from then on, I began to be able to perceive that some of the people who say these things that I don't agree with about feminism, about, you know, any, any topic really, um, that, that take these ideas much further than I could – they might have had something happen to them. They might have had something in their life. They might have experienced something or, you know, see the world in such a way that this is the only thing that makes sense to them or the thing that makes the most sense to them. And I want to be sensitive to that and sort of meet them where they are. So I get the sense that this writer who is, you know, seething in Whitby, Ontario, um, is thinking about the men who have done bad things for feminism and for women's rights when she's writing this. And that kind of helps me understand uh, where she's coming from. But it's still, at the end of the day, I can't quite agree with all of her logic. Uh, yeah, I, uh, I'm with you. And I the, the list lost me at, at the same point that you mentioned. Um, I, I, like you, um, was pleased to hear her address the existence of, of infighting within the movement, which we've we've talked about on this show before, um, specifically in our, our Internet Feminism episode last year. Uh, I thought it was great that she mentioned that. But, yeah, just saying that, like, if you're a man, you have no business um, – addressing these issues of infighting um, because you're a man um, seem to me, A, to be devaluing men's voices from furthering the movement, and B, seem to be relying on um, innate gender roles. Um, men are this way and women are this way, and not relying on the idea of gender as social construction, which to me is is, is so central to um, to the way feminism works um, that, that that seemed um, seemed yeah a little um, a little misguided to me. Katie, did you have thoughts on that? You know, mostly things that you guys have already said. I, I, I do agree that, that there were a lot of, there was a lot of great stuff. And I and I did love the idea that Blake mentioned about um, when he included the quote about finding things out for yourself or, uh, you know, and I, and I think maybe would add, or at least, you know, seek out um, someone who knows, right. Um, ask a, a friend who's a feminist or, Hey, maybe watch Joseph Gordon-Levitt's video that we talked about earlier. Um, I like the idea that if, uh, if a man is curious or wants to be more supportive that, you know, he should take those steps himself in part because that makes, you know, Learning ideas for yourself makes, I think, a person more likely to take ownership of those ideas, right? So if a man is engaging in that research himself, finding out what does this word mean, you know, is this something that I apply to myself and how does it work out in my life? I think that that was great. But I, I do agree that the tone was 
it was was very very negative and and i think that maybe that's where some of the oh i'm not a feminist is coming from even from other women too though in this case it was specifically directed at guys but definitely i think it, to try to uh, encourage men to be you know to take up a feminist cause and to support the women and girls in their life i do think that just just tone wise i think something like the joseph gordon levitt video or the emma watson speech might be more likely to make men feel included or or make them want to partake in a movement than than something like the list that we were discussing but you know again it, that's mainly about tone and and that could also be maybe a little bit of the teacher in me also thinking about um you know our lovely code words like audience awareness right when you're trying to appeal to a certain group um there's a certain tone you might use a more conciliatory tone but maybe that was not the goal you know perhaps she was seeking to raise awareness among men but not necessarily to you know, to build kind of bridges of, uh, of friendliness or, you know, that's not a great word, but, you know, not necessarily seeking to have a positive tone. Maybe that wasn't the point, in which case it was probably perfectly successful for the purpose. Yeah, I mean, may- maybe not, especially if you think about sort of historically, um, and I know we've mentioned the, ide- the idea of tone policing on this show before and how um, women are are often tone police and, and told to be nicer and less angry, um, you know, catch more flies with honey than with vinegar and whatnot, um, that, that sexism sometimes takes that form. So I, I think, Katie, you might be right that she, um, that the author, if she knows that sort of doesn't care based on context and, and, you know, that, that's okay too. I really like, um, what Blake said about having compassion and understanding that like, you don't know exactly what someone has been through and where they're coming from. So yeah, lots of, uh, lots of complexity when, when thinking about these issues. So, uh, we've talked a lot about the feminist part of Christian feminists so far on this episode and not a whole lot about the Christian part. So we'd like to do that for a few minutes here. Um, Blake, can you, uh, talk to us a little bit about if there's a biblical precedent for um, allyship as we've talked about it here. Um, does the Bible include either specific um, kind of cross-gender supportive relationships or um, general guidelines for men supporting women in the quest for equality? Right. Um I went looking for the idea of a man in the Bible really advocating for the rights of a woman or women in general, and I don't, you know, in in terms of the research I was I was I did for this uh, podcast, I didn't really find something that struck me directly as that. But there's a really uh, there's a lot that comes really close. So. Um, because a lot of the Bible is about the tribe of Israel, which is beset, you know, uh, on all sides by enemies and that sort of thing, you've got your prophets and your priests uh, advocating for the rights of all Israelites, and and so women get to be included in that often. Um, but there aren't as much of the the straight men, you know, like a he for she, I guess you could say, uh, in the Bible. Um, so, but there are a couple of cases of rapes being avenged, which show um, an interesting look at the way men react to violence against women in the Bible. For instance, in Genesis 34, we have what's called the defiling of Dinah uh, by a member of another um, nation named Shechem the Hivite. He wants 
to marry Dinah and rapes her. This is Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he requests that she be made his bride. And the sons of Jacob, as they are referred to in this chapter, um, are livid at this idea, uh, but they know that basically there needs to be a politically savvy way of dealing with this problem. So they tell the, the chief of the Hivites that the men of their community must be circumcised um, before any intermarriage between this group and the Israelites can take place. So after the circumcisions happen, the Hivites are kind of laid up and recovering from this. And um, the sons of Jacob, specifically Simeon and Levi, ambush and slaughter the men of this tribe as recompense for the rape. It has this really nice ending. Well, I guess nice might not be the best word to use, but uh, Genesis 34, 30 and 31 goes something like this. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said... Should he treat our sister like a prostitute? So this is a really great, I mean, that's where the story ends basically there. Um, It's a really great look at, you've got Jacob uh, basically trying to do the politically advantageous thing, trying to do, you know, military tactics and say, this was, you know, (laughs) uh, winning a battle that might cost us a war down the line. And the, the brothers of Dinah, who was raped here, say, basically say, it was an inexcusable crime and needed to be punished, and we don't care what it might, uh, what kind of ramifications it might have down the road, socio-politically or militarily, and that's an interesting dichotomy to see um, so early in the Bible. Now, if we move over to Second Samuel 13, we have the rape of Tamar, where uh, David's son, and David is king by this point, his son Amnon rapes his half-sister Tamar, and uh, he does desire marriage like Shechem did in Genesis 34, but he immediately hates her. So we've got this sense of that, you know, slut shaming immediately coming to play. You know, I want this woman and once I have her, I don't want her anymore. Really interesting to see, you know, uh, about 3,000 years ago in terms of historicity. Tamar actually resists being shunned by uh, Amnon like this because she knows that being raped and cast out um, as an unmarried woman, is even worse in her society than being raped and, and married. Um, so she is in a very terrible you know, position here. So her full brother, Absalom, also the son of King David, takes Tamar in to live with him. And David, there's a, a verse about David being angry at the offense, but he apparently does nothing about it. So Absalom uh, waits two years to get revenge, then gets Amnon drunk and has his own servants kill him. Uh, So Absalom flees Jerusalem, but eventually returns and plots an overthrow of David's throne, arguably, ostensibly out of anger at his father's indifference to the crime. Uh, And some scholars and pastoral theologians have written about this as a way of speaking to the pain that some female Christians have undergone when they experienced uh, similar crimes you know, spousal abuse or rape, and they're not appropriately loved by their church and their pastors and their Christian community uh, the same way David arguably sinned against Tamar by not doing anything about the rape. So very interesting, um, you know, 
thematic ideas that, that we're still talking about today in terms of slut shaming and and how marital, you know, infidelity and rape and abuse and, and how sometimes leaving your uh, your husband or your boyfriend can be even more difficult than staying, you know, um, that was in the news last year, as a matter of fact. Um, really interesting stuff and, and watching these characters in the Old Testament behave in really three-dimensional ways is very interesting as well. Just for the sake of time, I'm going to skip ahead to the New Testament now and kind of talk about Jesus being arguably the best uh, example of a male ally we have in the Bible, as you would guess, I guess. Um, Before I talk about him, I want to talk about the apocryphal Gospel of Thomas. A lot of people might know this already, but um, after the Bible was written, other books that claimed to be written by, you know, the disciples or Mary or other um, biblical figures popped up, they were almost all eventually denounced as forgeries, but they had some really interesting uh, ideas, and that kind of shows us a window into what people were thinking about at the time. So this apocryphal Gospel of Thomas, uh, I guess verse 114, says this, Simon Peter said to them, Mary should leave us. For females are not worthy of life. Jesus said, See, I am going to attract her to make her male, so that she too might become a living spirit that resembles you males. For every female that makes itself male will enter the kingdom of heaven. And I just got to say, one of my seminary professors had a a very fun time explaining this to us uh, when he first brought it up to us, and it was an interesting thing. Really... You know, you can see Jesus being a great male ally just by not being like this in the the actual canonical Gospels. Um, in the Gospels, he depended on women for his financial support. He kept company with women often. He spoke to the Samaritan woman at the well. Um, Samaritans were basically unclean to, you know, Jews and outcasts from the rest of the Jewish community. He accepted the company of uh, Mary Magdalene, and and a lot of tradition tells us that she was thought to have been a prostitute. A lot of other tradition says that's bogus. Um, But according to the Bible, had seven demons exercised from her, so still, you know, an interesting person to be around Jesus. And uh, the resurrected Jesus first appeared to women after his resurrection um, between one and five, depending on how far you want to go after his resurrection. Um, And a lot of people might know this, that in terms of apologetics, in terms of arguing for the faith, that's a really interesting point, because back then, women were not allowed to testify in court. Their testimony wasn't useful. Um, They were considered unreliable. And so for Jesus to appear to women when he might could have appeared to men instead, and, and thus had more people believe or something like that, was an interesting kind of political act. So, yeah, Jesus, you know, the Gospels from cover to cover are a really great source of male allyship um, in how Jesus treats women, young, old, prostitute, not all the kind of thing. I want to talk just a little bit about Paul while we're here. He often gets taken to task uh, 
sometimes he's just considered a, a kind of a straight-up misogynist. For instance, if you look at 1 Timothy uh, chapter 2, verses 12 through 14, it says, I permit no woman to teach or to dominate a man. She is to remain silent, for Adam was formed first, uh, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. And you might also say that his, his pen or his is a bit schizophrenic if you compare that with, for instance, Galatians 3.28, which we all um, have heard before. There is neither, neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. I'm currently reading a book by uh, an author named Richard Hayes called The Moral Vision of the New Testament, which examines the ethics that the New Testament shows. And he says um, that 1 Timothy 2 is one of the passages in the letter that could have hardly come from the pen of Paul. And I'm quoting him. He says, The assertion that women will be saved through bearing children clashes flagrantly with Paul's profound conviction that all human beings are saved only by virtue of the death of Christ. And the lame exoneration of Adam in 13 and 14 also sits oddly in conjunction with Paul's portrayal in Romans 5, of Adam as the source of sin, as a representative for sinful humanity. And the peculiarity of the passage has given rise to various imaginative, exegetical attempts at damage control, but the overall sense of the text is finally inescapable. Women, or perhaps wives, are to be silent and submissive and to bear children. Hayes goes on to say that whomever wrote 1 Timothy was probably a generation after Paul, and he assumed Paul's overall ethics before writing his church order because he doesn't seem to lean as heavily on the crucified Christ as Paul does in, in the books like Romans and 1 Corinthians that we're very sure are written by Paul. Um, so it's an interesting idea that maybe the person who said women are to be silent isn't the same person who said there is no male or female but are all are in Christ Jesus. Um, and that might be a way of us, you know, uh, untangling that kind of schizophrenia. There's really no real place where men advocate specifically for the rights of women in the Old or New Testaments, but they advocate for human rights, and they do show uh, respect for women against cultural norms. And often the rules of the Bible, when they are laid down in history, they are some of the most progressive towards women of their time and in their space. And that's just a really great treasure trove of interesting information if you want to dig for it. Thanks, Blake, for sharing that information. Uh, I learned a lot just listening to those few minutes, and I'm sure our listeners did too. Uh, but unfortunately, we are running over time, so we need to uh, skip to our last segment, the recommendation segment. And um, we thought that in the spirit of the theme of the episode, we would give some recommendations uh for people who want to learn more about feminism, kind of entry-level uh, texts that we would recommend to people who are just starting out. Uh, Katie, you go first, and then Blake, and I'll wrap us up. Okay, so my recommendation, I'm scared it's going to sound super brown-nosy and or blatantly uh, us promoting, but I actually am going to recommend tonight that anyone starting out actually would do very, very well to begin at the beginning of the Christian Feminist Podcast. As someone who came to the kind of feminism um, as an idea, as a grown-up, I know even um, even 
now it's it's even helped me having you know begin begun to listen to the podcast before I was ever a part of it. I think that I learned so much in especially in the first kind of few episodes when everything's being laid out. Here's what it means. Here's how it began. And I think it's just a really great, those first few episodes are a really great primer for anyone who is just starting, who wants to learn more. And so, again, at the risk of sounding super podcast promoting, um, that is actually going to be my recommendation tonight is actually to listen um, rather than read to the first few episodes of the Christian Feminist Podcast. I'll handle it from the, uh, I guess, theological standpoint, since I'm already in that mode in my head right now. Uh, I've been told that Carolyn Custis James uh, is a theologian and writer who's really good at explaining um, just how the Bible is a document that offers a lot of hope to women, uh, especially people who might have read it and and not seen that so much, or might have been told by you know preachers and teachers in their past that you know things they didn't want to believe about God and the Bible, specifically her book, uh, Half the Church. It looks at the Bible and and sort of excavates three different themes that uh, shows women that they have a hope um, to reach for and that the Bible is a document of of great hope and promise for them as well. So that's my recommendation uh, for this week. Thanks, both of you, for those. Uh, I have two recommendations. Um, One is a blog uh, called the Feminism 101 blog, which is exactly what it sounds like. Um, They've got frequently asked questions about feminism and also a list of um, definitions of common terms to the movement. Um, Really straightforward, really accessible, and, and... tonally, since we've, we've talked about tone a bit on this episode, um, not as kind of sarcastic and snarky as sometimes the general feminist internet, uh, is want to be, um, pretty much just straightforward and, and about, um, education first and foremost. So that's my first recommendation. And my second, um, leans a little bit towards my own, um, interest and and academic focus. Um, If you are someone looking to get into feminism who is part of academia, um, and and maybe if you're not too, but especially if you are, I would recommend uh, Feminist Classic, uh, Virginia Woolf's A Room of One's Own. Um, It's about 100 pages, novella length. Um, If you're a reader, you can get through it in one sitting. Um, But it has a lot specifically to say about Um, sexism in academia and in literature, the ways um, books that we read frame women as lesser than men and women as also um, enemies to other women. Um, There's a, my favorite passage in A Room of One's Own is the passage where um, the narrator is reading and is shocked by the idea that one character, Chloe, is friends with another female character, Olivia. And then she goes on to talk about um, how many female characters in male-authored texts are actually enemies um, in a way that you don't really see men being enemies. So she's calling for kind of fleshed-out female textual relationships. So uh, if you um, are into literature and or the academic life, um, that's my second recommendation, Virginia Woolf's A Room of One's Own. 
So we have talked enough tonight. Uh, I've really enjoyed this conversation, and I hope you listeners have too. Thank you for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. We want to hear from you. If you have a topic or reading recommendation for a future show, or if you just want to drop us a line and say hi, you can do that at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. For show notes for this episode and all our other episodes, check out christianhumanist.org. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Podcast Network. Kristen Philippic is our publishing liaison, and Zach Schmidt is our intern. For Katie Grubbs and Blake Miller, I'm Victoria Reynolds-Farmer. Tune in in two weeks when we'll cover Anne Leckles' ancillary justice and the notion of feminist science fiction. Until then, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, and in all things love.